Welcome back. RF Factor, episode number 20. We just hit a milestone here. Um, tonight, I'm again joined by George Belsky. He's filling in for uh, Mr. Pete Gagliardi. I know you guys all miss Pete, but he'll be back soon enough. Uh, but more importantly, and I'm sorry about this, George, but more importantly, uh, today's, today's priority is to introduce Commissioner John Muller of the Yonkers Police Department. And I say that because I've been trying to get John on the show probably for the last 10 months and no, certainly no fault of his. All, all the fault was mine, but uh, he doesn't know this, but there's, uh, there's a conversation that he and I had back in, in Phoenix. Uh, I guess it's a little over, probably right about now. I saw you in Phoenix. So it's about a year ago we talked and it was the first time I had heard someone describe precision policing. And when, you know, and he was actually drawing things on the back of a napkin. Uh, we were, we were having dinner, a whole bunch of, uh, folks from, uh, law enforcement, former, uh, retired law enforcement talking about strategy, technology, and he was going over precision policing. And I was in complete awe because my whole or I should say the latter part of my career was all about intelligence-led policing. And I spent a lot of time and effort in, in and on intelligence-led policing. And when I heard John speak about precision policing, I needed to look further into it. And not that I was wrong about intelligence-led policing, but what I've come to find, because what really is the underpinning of precision policing is data. And my 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 moment in time there that I, I sort of look back fondly now is that I realized that you got to have data before you can have intelligence. And uh, very interesting to speak to, to John tonight of what he's been able to do with data in terms of making it strategic as it relates to precision policing and in terms of uh, disorder and in terms of ensuring with the community that were uh, targeting the right, the, the right people in terms of the criminals and the right areas. So, John, you don't know this, but thank you. Uh, I know you're a Comstat uh, acolyte yourself, and the RF factor uh, is based on that third element of the Comstat, the relentless follow-up. So, welcome aboard. Thank you, Ray, and thank you, yeah. George. Um. So, you know, I threw out a lot on that intro about precision policing, about data and about intelligence uh, and about drawing on the back of a napkin in a restaurant bar. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So, first of all, we had a great time at that bar and, um, <laughs> there were, uh, you know, it wasn't just drawing on a napkin, but we had a good time. Uh, it, you know, Ray, you're always great company and, and um, you know, the whole group that were there. But. It's kind of like one of the things that shines about retired guys and senior guys where, you know, we're at the point in our careers where we're just happy to share information, to reason together, to throw ideas out. And uh, that's what a large portion of that night was about. And, and just to speak to one point you made about intelligence led policing versus precision policing. My take on it is, you know, you're, it's not a mistake. Uh, it's more of looking at the situation and saying I'm situational. And I've identified a better way to do this. I think that's what's great about a profession is we're constantly trying to build a better mousetrap. We don't reinvent the wheel when we don't when we don't need to, 
But, you know, you know, as the situation changes, you have to be able to pivot. And, and I think that's what it's all about is CompStat was great in the beginning, but then we learned a lot of things about it subsequently. And we didn't just ignore those things. And now we're taking all that knowledge and we're just making a better mousetrap. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so we're all learning. I love it. I love always it. learning. Always, always learning. Never, never thought in a million years uh, that we would be here, uh, say, three years ago when I started the job here, almost three years as police commissioner. And then, you know, I, I'm fully aware that we'll probably be somewhere different in two years from now, or three years from now. It's that, you know, the thing about our, our, our profession is you just can't hang up, you know, and just say, hey, problem solved and uh, we're going to be good for the rest of our lives. It's just not the way policing works. There's so many outside variables and factors that come into play. So, you know, this is just about us all learning and constantly trying to refine and dial in and just be better and better. John, I, I find when I, I teach uh, organizational change classes and I, and I heard this from uh, from a police executive and uh, and I've used it in my classes ever since. You know, cops hate two things more than anything in the world. Uh, one of those is the way things are, and uh, the other thing is change. So I, I noticed uh, that you that you recognize that you know Yonkers PD is probably going to be different uh, in two years than it is right now, and I'm sure it's different today than it was even two years ago uh, before. Right? We've we've gone through gone through so much. How, uh, and this, this ties into uh, the, the RF factor, the relentless follow-up part of this, is how do you as a leader um, institute the change and then make sure that uh, the command influence carries it through to the point where um, it can become the new culture? Right. Because that that old question that says, you know, well, why do we do this? And somebody says, we've always done it that way. Well, we know that's not true, because at one time, the we've always done it that way was a new way. So how, how have you found, especially with something that's so um, uh, data driven and, and requires tech that you make those changes and in a follow up to make it part of the culture? So I think the biggest part is. You know, and it's an org it's what you're talking about with respect to organizational management. You're you're drawing in stakeholders. You have to make a sale as a lead, as the lead person. You, you know, you can't just say, This is a top-down exercise, you're gonna do what I say, I'm not gonna tell you why, I'm not gonna provide the benefits to you. No, it's it's engaging at every single level. I just sent out an email today because we're getting crushed with catalytic converters uh, thefts, which are happening, I'm sure Ray knows, all over the East Coast. And we went, and now I'm not, I'm not declaring victory, but it's a perfect example. Uh, we went from 24 cat converter thefts last week to two this week because we recognized that almost every catalytic converter theft comes with someone using a bogus New Jersey, Texas, or Utah paper plate. So what we've done is just stepped up enforcement on all paper plates. We go to 24 to two. Now, the point of the reason I'm bringing up this is because I sent this slide out asking the commanding officers of each of the four precincts in Yonkers to share my gratitude in an email and the slide that shows the 24 last week with the two this week. So it's constantly making that sale. It's explaining. And, and there's another big picture too here is that I don't know everything. 
and I'm never going to know everything. And this organization isn't going to be the best it can be unless you're constantly drawing in every single level of, of, uh, of command and, and at the police officer level. These guys know a lot. These guys are engaged at every level. They want to be part of the process. So when you get that stakeholder mentality, um, the cultural aspect, and you're right, George, the cultural aspect is huge. You know, anybody can do a really good job in their time. But the magic, the real pros, I think, and I always aspire to this. I, you know, the jury's out if I've, I've achieved it. But the, what you're really looking to aspire to is to have the change remain. Not necessarily in your strategies or techniques, but you're looking to have the change as far as being open to new ideas and willing to have, you know, a police officer send you a note and say, I think we could do this better. And then calling them up and saying, I love this or we can't do this because. And you're right. And I have actually it's funny when you said um, we've always done it this way. I have a, a, a frame in my office and it's near my desk. So when someone comes in, I bring it next to me. And as they start to say that or they start going down that direction, I pick it up and I put it next to me. And I just stare at them while I have the, the actual uh, <laughs> picture in front of me. And then if they keep talking, then I start tapping it um, because that, that, that's the death of any organization. We've always done it that way. Um, you know what I'm hearing you say? And tell me if I'm right here. And this is the first I've heard it. We're on our 20th episode here. But part of relentless follow up is actually doing what you just described is sending out that email, sending out that direction to let folks know that the job they're doing is working. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the purpose is that we are grateful for their work. So we're thanking them. And we're also trying to uh, loop them into the bigger picture. Like I know how it was coming on the job and I'm sure it was for same for George and Ray. Like we'd be told something and no one would even tell us why. So we'd be like, oh, I don't know. So now by sharing with them, like, look, this is part of why we went from 24 catalytic converter thefts last week to two this week, because it's open season on every paper plate that's driving around in Yonkers on the midnight shift. So if we're pulling them over and we're impounding a large number of them because they're all messed up, every one of those, a large portion of those are not legit. Fake. Um, fake. Paper's all messed up. And, and so letting them know, like, this is why we were asking you to do it. And look what the great work you've done. Um, like I said, these guys, they're fan- and guys and girls, they're really, they want to do the job. We're very blessed with great officers. So, so tell us about the size of, uh, Yonkers, uh, PD and what it's responsible for and, and what's actually happening with, uh, your city there. So, uh, we are now, we just eclipsed Rochester as the third largest city in New York state. There's only Buffalo and New York city. Wow. And we're the third largest now. And I, I was saying that. <laughs> Uh, to George about this, I think we'll probably end up at some point passing Buffalo because we're gaining people. And, 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 you know, unfortunately the economics of, you know, upstate New York, they're losing people. Right. And um, so we have a sworn uh, force of 611 sworn. Uh, we probably would between uh, detention officers, dispatchers and, and crime analysts and people like that, probably a total of like 720 or 730. So our, our, uh, the city size is uh, 210,000. And it's 26 square miles, so it's fairly densely populated. And um, we, we border New York City. We're right on the, the border of the Bronx. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's never a dull moment. John, what, um, as you're, as you're uh, definitely expanding um, your precision policing, where, where would you like to see it go next? 
I think I think where it is. So let's start where it is now. So I, I can say, you know, as as there's been a lot of challenges to law enforcement the last two years, as we know, there's a t- tremendous amount of rising crime. And so your question, George, is a great one. Where do I want to see it go? Right now, we do not have what I refer to as it's more of a business term, but we don't have an end to end solution in many cities, not Yonkers. And I'll I'll, I'll parse that out in a second. But um, what you're seeing with a lot of progressive woke uh, district attorneys is that the, the cops and the police departments are doing a great job. The community supports the way the police are doing their job. And then it falls off when it goes to the prosecutor. You can't have public safety unless you have an end to end solution. Everyone has to be on board. And I'm happy to say that my district attorney, who is fairly progressive, um, she's always willing to listen. We talk. Um, and now she's employed in a precision prosecution um, uh, strategy, just like a precision policing. And she's recognizing that, look, we don't have to lock up the whole world. We're down this year in the, Yonkers, in the city of Yonkers, 10 percent in crime. 11% violent crime and 9% property in 2021. Uh, not, uh, not, not the usual these days. And one of the huge reasons for that is our district attorney, that when we bring a case to her, um, we're coming with all the details. We're making sure that we have our T's crossed and our I's dotted and we're squared away and we're following the law and we're, we're making a good case for why we're prosecuting this. And all, despite the fact that we, we're down 10% in crime, we're lower with arrests than we ever have been in recent memory. We're now why, below 3,000 arrests. Why is that? That's, that's impressive, right? Well, the, the key, then that's kind of like a ray of place of the harder precision policing. We don't have to do mass incarceration. We don't have to arrest the whole right. world. You know, we, you know in, in, when New York City did this, I mean, you can't argue with the context of 2,200 murders in 1990 in New York City and then 500 in 2011. But somewhere we lost the community because we were doing this carpet bombing, stop question and frisk, just stopping everyone. And, and listen, we, we can all agree that, you know, you stop a guy who's not bothering anybody, just working hard and trying to make a living, no matter how polite, no matter how constitutional the stop is, it's uncomfortable for people. So now we don't have to stop hardly anybody because we know all of our top offenders. That's one of the big tenets of precision policing. Every single crime category has top offenders. Let's take Larsie from auto if you want me to. Do you want me to talk about that? Yes, certainly. Okay, so let's say the 4th Precinct in Yonkers has 30 Larsie from autos a month, about 30. It's not 30 different offenders doing one each, saying, all right, Ray, you got Sunday, and uh, George, I can't do Saturday, so cover for me on Saturday, and I'll do, <laughs> I'll do your Monday. No, it's, it's two guys doing it, usually. It's one who did 20 of them, and another one who did 10. Now, it looks like, oh, it's a petty crime. But when I get those two guys in jail for at least nine months, which is what we usually get, I have nine months of peace. Because if you understand these types of offenders, especially property offenders, the cycle of addiction is what drives them. They're all addicted to heroin, right? So they spend 12 hours high as a kite and the next 12 hours trying to find money so they don't get sick in the next 12 hours. It just repeats every single night. So when we know when they're getting out of jail, we know where they offend. We know where they sell the stuff. We know what kind of, you know, do they, this guy breaks windows. This guy only tries door handles. Knowing all those things, we don't have to stop anybody. When that guy comes out, we're all over him. And to the DA's credit, when we go there, she's not saying, oh, that's a petty crime. We don't care about it because we're bringing the criminal history. We're bringing the, the million times he didn't show up to court because it's mostly guys. It's not usually not he or she. And we're finding not only are we getting 
uh, year sentences, but sometimes we're getting consecutive, two consecutive, two consecutive one year sentences, which is unheard of. And, and that's why we have less arrests and yet crime is lower. You know, uh, there's probably people listening to this to go, okay, we went through community policing, um, problem policing, intelligence led policing, uh, now precision policing. And th- that said, can you give a maybe a little bit more of a granular perspective of precision policing, but specifically how you've deployed that strategy within within Yonkers to include technology? So what it what we do is, you know, we have relationships across the board and, and like, you know, a lot of police departments have Comstat meetings once a month because that's what we learned from New York City. Um, but we're looking at this stuff every single day and that's where the technology comes in. We're looking at, you know, where the offenses are trending and then trying to connect that pattern with a likely person. And very quickly, you're going to find out who it is, whether it's, you know, burglaries like we know you know, in this business for a long time, if a guy does laundry, laundry room burglaries, it's a very specific segment of offenses, but that's the guy's bread and butter, right? I mean, he, he knows how to break into all steel, like 10,000 quarters, and he does it until he goes to jail. Um, having our crime strategy meetings once a week, in addition to CompStat once a month, we're never allowing any pattern to get out of control. Like with, instead of waiting, because we used to do that, and I think we learned, like, we're talking about stuff that's already been solved at CompStat. So is it activity equals accomplishment? Didn't seem particularly effective to me. When we started talking about it every single day and then adding in, okay, be prepared. This top offender just got out of jail and the last known address he gave is X. Now everybody is, is dialed in. We're all looking at it. And the other, the granular piece that's very important, Ray, is again, to get the DA on board. Police departments in general are fairly effective about dealing with crime, but you can't do it unless you have someone who's willing to prosecute and go for jail time. And the other piece is the community buys into it because we take the time to explain to the community. Um, I always start with, uh, especially if the community is unhappy with us, I'll say, how many people here think we should have more shootings? Raise your hand. And of course, no one's (laughs) hands goes up. And so I say, see, already. You know, I feel tense here. It's a little tense in, in the meeting, but already we agree on something. It was the first question I asked. We're, we're going to be best of friends. Right. And, uh, that's how you kick it off, because it's very hard to argue um, with people. Now, there are activists out there that will say no one should go to jail and everything else. And we have to have more social programs. And I don't disagree with that. But what I hit him back with is what about tonight? That's always my answer. Fine. You want to put together this program? Not program? I'll support it. Uh, hopefully we can get, you know, an academic institution to get on board with us and study it to make sure that it works. But what about tonight? Because everyone has these big ideas, these glossy, flowery ideas to solve problems. But a lot of them, it takes time to put that all together. And then you even have to see the efficacy of whatever you're trying to propose. So tonight is I have to stop people from shooting each other, breaking into cars and robbing people. And that's what the goal is tonight. But the community in Yonkers, because we're so transparent about how we do it, extremely, extremely supportive uh, to, to a point. A lot of them are like, I know, I know, John, it's precision policing. Because you, gotta, <laughs> you, you, you know, you got to be selling all the time, you know, because I think it's fine. I call it like a policing state of grace. Like, look at look at the great work these cops in Yonkers are doing. Crime is down 10 percent and arrests are down. 
and we have the community is supporting the way we're doing it. Like that's the best of all the worlds. Like when we were doing like stop question first go all over the place, a lot of guys were just getting stopped and it was uncomfortable and, and it was just hard to do. Now, you know, it's like we don't have many stop question first. Why? Because we know who just got out of jail. We know who's out of custody right now. And we know who works this area. We're just going to look for him. He's not hard to find. So, John, what's interesting is that you've, you've you know, been on the front end when, when CompStat was new. And, and here we are now, you know, gosh, almost 30 years later, maybe more. Um, and has it been the increase in technology that's made it so much better? Or as you were saying, we've learned to, to use both the hardware and the software uh, better to help us fine tune uh, where we need to go instead of going from a month, we're now going to, you know, a, a week. I know any nowadays, it seems like if you have something that's a month old, it, it might as well be stale. That's a hundred percent. You're right. It, it is a combination. Um, uh, clearly the, the, uh, technology has gotten way better and, and we're using it as Ray knows as much as we can everywhere we can. But I also think that we also did kind of transition from understanding like what people were looking for as far as public safety. And it's just a very minimal law enforcement footprint. You, you, you go after the people that need to go after every crime category. Like I said, I just saw, and, and um, I'm going to email it to you, Ray. Great uh, research that came out of university of Pennsylvania, where they're saying the gang takedowns quote unquote uh, are effective for lowering gun violence. Cause we know like not every kid in a gang, is willing to pick up a gun and shoot someone in the face. They're just not, you know, if there's 50 kids, there's probably two or three that are capable of that kind of violence. So you got to get them. And then you see your numbers go down. Um, but I, I the technology is really important. And it's also the way we look at it. Like it used to be, and again, it's, it's, I hate to say it, I'm a boss and you guys were bosses, but the bosses usually mess things up. <laughs> and and, and, and uh, listen, I'm going to be frank. I mean, we turned stop question and frisk into a metric. Like, why didn't you get this many? And why didn't you have this many narcotics arrests? And then you start pushing people to feel like this is a numbers game when it's not. It's, it's the, the higher power, the, the, the problem solving of it is to say is, am I having violence or property crime in a given area? Am I using the tools I have? But I'm not just doing it for the sake of doing it. You, you know, it's not, it's not a good thing to, which used to happen to say, go out there and get 15 stop question and frisks. Well, what if there's no crime when the cop's working? then you shouldn't do it at all because it's unconstitutional. I think we've learned that we don't put pressure on our officers anymore at all to say, you got to have this many arrests, this many stop question or frisks or anything. We say, go solve the problem. When you need to take enforcement action, take it. Be smart about it. Be respectful. Be focused. But don't feel like we're breathing down your neck like that was the original CompStat model or what it turned into, which it shouldn't have, of metrics, metrics, metrics. Well, I'm always looking at one thing. The bottom line is, where's my crime at? That's it. Wow. Can I uh, return to the community? What, what's your secret sauce with the community? Uh, because, you know, and, 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 and let me, let me give some context. There is that years ago, there was this mindset as wrong as it was that, well, if you, if you were going to be heavy in uh, crime and disorder, you 
how would that impact the community? You, you couldn't be both. And obviously, we know that's wrong. We knew it was wrong then, but you've brought it to a, a whole other level here where the community is engaged with you with precision police. And what's the secret? Uh, it, it, the secret is just talking to everybody who's willing to talk to you and making time in your day to say, I'm going to pick up the phone. If I can't pick up the phone right now from a community person who has a concern, they got my cell phone, everyone's got my cell phone. I'll text you and say, I'll call you back. And I always make sure at the end of the day, unless it's like a, a real catastrophe that day, which happens sometimes, uh, I call them back. And it's walking them through the process and making the case for it and explaining it. Because a lot of the community, um, th there's this overblown mischaracterization in some cases of what we do and what we don't do. And we never took the time to talk to people about why we use Stop, Quest, and Fresh or what the issues are in the neighborhood. And one of the secret sauce, Ray, that I found when I was a precinct commander in the 4th Precinct, which is a largely African-American um, precinct, is that we never worked on the small things that anybody would appreciate. And, and it wasn't fair that we didn't do that. So take an example, you know, and I know you guys have been to a million of these community meetings you go. And they say, you know, this, you know, uh, Captain, this, this street light's been out for, I don't know, uh, a year. And the normal thing, it's like the drool coming down your mouth. Well, call 377 help and maybe <laughs> they'll send somebody over. Bullshit. Don't do that. What you do is you go out. I used to go out after they told me that and I get the number off the pole. And then I would call my hook in lighting in the lighting department and say, I want this fixed in a week. Do me a favor. Help me out. And nine times, out of, 10 times out of 10, they do it. Then you come back, it's like, holy cow, like this guy actually listened to us and it's illegal dumping. Let's face it, we're, we were blessed with low crime right. where I wasn't really worried about robberies and, and, and like a lot of murders. I was worried about illegal dumping. And I think that we sell our communities of color short saying that they don't, they don't want police in their communities. They do. They just want to be treated with respect and they want working partners. And if you're willing to do that and you show them, you know, week at, month after month, like, my community meetings, I insisted, I said, we're going to have every, we're going to start each meeting with what we said we were going to do last meeting. And then I'll say, okay, here's six things that we said we were going to work on. Uh, the first three, we knocked it out of the park. It's done. It's over. Fixed. Uh, the last, the second, the, the final three, one of them I can't do. And here's why. And the last two, it looks like it's going to take us another month or two. People appreciate that because I don't care if you're black, brown, white. Everybody wants the same thing. They want, they don't want to see violence in front of their neighborhood. They want it to be clean. They want the radio to go down at a certain amount of time at night. And, you know, you can use those type of positions where, you know, our officers can now go to the guys on the corner and say, turn the radio down. I'm not here to break your balls. I'm asking you to do this on behalf of another member. She could be a grandmother. And, right. and what would you want to do if your grandmother wanted to get some sleep? Nine times out of 10 guys will turn the radio down. They understand. How um, I know in my my past experience I have done some um, community type policing programs where you know as, as the ATF guys we were to we were bringing a federal hammer in and it was amazing that you just like you said John and this is going back uh, several years ago you know you have your first community policing meeting and we're trying to take guns off the street and and somebody says you know. That mattress has been against that fence down at the dead end of the street, and why hasn't it moved yet? And and that's that's what they want to see. How how have you been able to relay 
uh, your attitude and and what you want down to uh, the rest of the chain of command uh, in the Yonkers PD? Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's much to their chagrin. But a lot of times what I'll do is I'll go to the meeting too and I'll just jump in and take over. And it's like, I'm, I mean, I'm not dating myself. You guys are all guy, old guys too. I'm like Phil Donahue running around with the microphone, um, you know, getting questions and asking questions. And, and that's where they start to see. And then when I get a community complaint, you know, they start seeing, you know, the, the kind of, you know, the, how, you know, how we solve these problems. We're engaging with the email. We're following up with a phone call. And then it's important when you're done and you actually have some success to call up and say, hey, Mrs. Smith, I just want to let you know that issue. Remember that you brought up two months ago. The problem has been solved. And here's why. And if you need anything going forward, because at the end of the day, policing is like any other profession. There are clients. We don't have, you know, an ability to say, uh, you know, our no, uh, you know, we're making money this month or this year. Our quarters look, you know, good, like in, in finance, finance. But it is our earnings report. You know, the, the the satisfaction of the community, coupled with where our crime and quality of life issues are. And I say it all the time. I say, right now we're in the black. Sometimes we're in the red, and we have to get out of the red. But at the end of the day, there are clients, and and the real way to do this. And people are so fair. I, I, I'll tell you. It and the other thing I I I. I didn't mention, but I want to mention is this can't be done when something bad happens. Like I, I'm sure you guys watch just like I did when Ferguson blew up and being a cop for a long time, looking at that situation, they had brought in an African-American captain, state trooper captain from the Missouri state police. When I saw that, I'm like, Oh, th these guys are toast. So this is what the police and slash city of Ferguson's their response was. Let's go find a black officer to talk to these black people. So what it told me was they did not develop that relationship in advance. You can't wait until something blows up and then say, hey, we should all be friends and talk. This takes years to develop. And there's so many more opportunities each and every day that officers can make friends. I tell them all the time, don't think about making enemies in eight hours. Think about all the friends you can make by just solving very similar problems, simple problems. Take that extra time. I call the, the rookies. I say, I got a 21 minute rule for you. And that would go for Ray's parents or George's parents or John's parents, I want you to make whatever the complaint is all about them for the next 20 minutes. I'm not paying you. You know, you're not going to make more money because you want on more assignments. <laughs> I want you to take the time and handle it right so that when one of those Ferguson things happens on television, that person's going, you know what? I, I'm sure that happened there, but it ain't like it here. And you take the, you know, what the, the summer of unrest in 2020, we had a thousand people march eight hours straight, and we had not one arrest, not one piece of property damaged, and not one physical injury. Thousand people from all over. Wow. Because, and I'm not saying it couldn't have happened. We had a lot of luck. God was on our side that day. But I do believe that we made a lot of deposits in our community bank account where our people, when I say our people, I'm their people, they're my people. Um, we talked to them about what the route was going to be. They didn't know. Okay. We made sure we had an ambulance there in case some of the older folks that wanted to march got heat exhaustion. We had water at different areas. Um, and we had done all the stuff about cleaning up the dumping and doing the streetlights. So when we did that, um, I even found that when, you know, unfortunately it is what it is, but what I found was a lot of wealthy uh, white college kids came into Yonkers. They couldn't have got here without using ways. And they had all this stuff to shout and yell and everything else. And my community of color stood up for the YPD saying, Hey, listen, 
These guys aren't like that. We're still emotional about the situation with George Floyd, but you're not going to destroy our town. And, and I'm so proud of the community and the cops of getting through that like that. Hey, John, last week I, I wrote an article and it was about uh, data. And while I was writing it, you were one of the, the leaders that I had on my mind. And, and the reason being is that you've been innovative in your approach to using technology to sort of build out this end-to-end solution. That couldn't have been by accident. Where does that come from? And, and I say that because there are a lot of you know, leaders that you know, grow up in different elements of a police organization or, um, or in public safety. So they may not be experts in technology. They may not necessarily understand technology from a development side of the house or even strategically implementing that. What made you different? Like, was there some moment you had in understanding why technology is such a huge key to the success of your police department? I think I think that is a fair point. Like, I think, you know, technology giving you all the things you need as far as being able to do your earnings report, and your 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 assessments as to where you're at. Um, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, I think that, you know, just being so excited about this work like I am and, and having and blessed with smarter guys than me, like Bill Gates, says, I say it about myself. Uh, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in the wrong room. Uh, and the guys that I work with are way smarter than me. And they're also as enthusiastic. So there's a lot of stuff that's just flying around. And, and there's another part of this. And a lot of police departments are starting to realize about technology, the benefits of it. One thing I knew when I came in, Ray, was that I had a CAD system, a community computer-aided dispatch system that we implemented in 1991. It was a DOS system. We have it to this day. <laughs> oh, I also wow. knew that we had an RMS system, which is the biggest you know, as you know, the biggest drawer of that, um, that was from a company that maybe they were good in their time, uh, bought up by another company, uh, very siloed between those two uh, data poles, uh, CAD versus RMS. They didn't talk to each other. There's so much wasted manual labor that goes into like drawing the data out. So the one thing I knew is like, whatever we were going to do, we had to do something else because as good as these cops are and as good as our analysts are, about, you know, it's, it's kind of like having a, an old car that just you can't even find parts for anymore, and yet you're still able to make it run and drive and you can get around. You know, the, the problem with the, those types of systems is you know you're going to get a flat. You know the engine's going to seize. Uh, eventually, you know the transmission's going to blow. And, when and, there's, it does, and there's no more warranty. <laughs> there's no, the warranty has run out. You're on your own. And, and that's really was one of the big pushes, too, you know, that I think of it is that we just knew wow, uh, if we don't do something soon, we're going to really be behind the eight ball. And, and hey, look, I'm lucky too. Like a lot of agencies and, and municipalities don't have a mayor like I got to have. Like I got to give a plug to him. Like he's the one who says yes to these things. Right. And then um, when he says yes to it, then we, if we bond for it, we have to go before the council. And the fact that we built those relationships with the council, when we come to them with a big ask like we did, uh, they, were, they were fine with it. You know, it's able to show. And I think, it's also making the sale again. Like one of the things I love about what we bought was the public facing uh, platform, because now we're going to be able to push out all this information to anybody who wants to sign up. You want to see how many robberies we have? Here it is. You want to see how many burglaries? Here it is. 
Because a lot of times you'll ask people like, well, how many murders do you think there are in Yonkers? So like, I don't know, 100 a year. And you go, well, last year we only had nine. Uh, so, you know, but they like, don't know that. Of, yeah. They yeah. don't know that. And we ha- as a culture and a profession have never been comfortable for whatever reason if sharing that. You know, the worst thing you can say is no comment. The best thing you can say is I have nine homicides. Do you want to go down and I can discuss the details with each of them if you want? Um, and, and we're, you know, so that's where I think it's, it's, it's really valuable, too, because we're going to be able to pull all this information and then give it to the public. Do what you want with it. Like, it's kind of like the body cam footage. We just got body cams and they are the best thing. Even my uh, more salty officers, the senior guys, and I, and I know you guys appreciate this. They're senior to themselves. They're not senior to you and me. Uh, but they're, they're all senior. You know, okay, you have 10 years. Do you have, you. Do, you I, have a pic- I, do you have a picture for that too? You know, I try to, I try to play it down, but I, I say like, you know, when you, you tell me all these things, I said, you know, I'm not smarter than anybody else, but you do realize I was here before you were friggin' born. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, or close to it. Uh, but, you know, listen, it's, it's, I think what it comes down to is us all figuring out just how to pull that data body cams, you know, they were scared of them at first that our unions did a great job of negotiating with the city. The mayor was very good. We wrote a real solid policy about it. And now that we have it, it's almost like, especially with a lot, lot of uh, like the ACLU and freedom of information, they, it's like a baby that wants a toy that you won't give a toy. They scream and scream and scream. And when you give them the toy, you don't hear about it again. They drop the toy in five seconds because that's what we've seen here. They ask for these data dumps and then we give them to them and we never hear about them again. Maybe it's because right. the guys did a good job. And maybe because right. what they got, um, they weren't, they thought it was going to be something different. But fighting that perception, whether it's the ACLU or, you know, regular citizens or the cops or whoever, uh, very important to get out in front and just tell it, how, tell it how it is. So let me let me just go go back to this point, because I was very impressed with you. I, I sat through several long meetings with you about technology and never once did you sort of gloss over. And I don't think technology was your background. But you were so plugged in to understanding um, what tech, I, what this these technology or technological applications could do for you and your PD. That's the, the the piece I'm talking about. That I don't see that in a lot of in all executive leaders because if they'll usually bring someone else in that is a, a bit more savvy or informed on technology to to make. To help you make an informed decision, you seem to be completely plugged into this. And like and, a kid in a candy store, it's like Christmas morning. It's like yeah. you're going to give me this stuff to 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 do a better job and make my community safer and make things easier on my cops. Like my God, where have you been all my life? Because it's always <laughs> an issue of money. You know how that goes. And so, like, yeah, I didn't right. gloss over. I, I really immersed in. I don't have a technology background, not at all. Um, so I know enough to know what I don't know. Right. Um, and one, one of the ways we're going to roll this out that I think is very important is I want it bottom up, not top down. Um, my officers that are out there taking reports right now, I haven't written a report in 25 years, probably, or 20 years. I haven't written a report. Um, so who the hell am I to tell them this is what the page should look like? Now, my crime analysts and my crime strategists can say we need these different metrics, uh, these, these uh, points of data to be in the report. But I want the cops who are writing the reports to decide how they want it, you know, as much as it can be customized, let them decide. 
Because when they do that, then they're more invested. Same thing goes for detectives. Same thing goes when supervisors are writing, you know, uh, supervisory reports. Tell me how you want it. I don't know. Um, I'm not out there. I, I have to depend on you. So I think that bottom up approach of, of, you know, I know that I want something. It's, I, I keep it pretty simple, right? I want something that works for my cops that doesn't frustrate them more than they get frustrated. Um, I want something that we can really be very focused and precision on how we're dealing with public safety based on the data we're pulling. And I want be something I can share the good work or when we come up short with the public. You know, I'm, I'm hard pressed to ask a, uh, to ask another question uh, because of all the things that I teach when I teach leadership, John, you've like hit on everything. You know, there, there's uh, there's communication and collaboration with the with the community. It builds up that trust bank that that you go to use. Um, let me ask you this: Has it always been that way at Yonkers PD? Have you just been able to just carry carry the the torch forward from some other folks, or, or did you have to do some major shifting? Once you got there, I got to say, in my opinion, I think it started when the Yonkers PD went outside to find a police commissioner and they selected Ed Hartnett. Ed Hartnett was an NYPD chief and he came in and he really fast forwarded so many different things in the YPD. Um, We would not be anywhere near where we are if not for Ed Hartnett. He was the one who really brought a lot of these great ideas uh, that were tested and proven in the NYPD and implemented them. And I think he had a lot of heavy lift. And I think in every leader's kind of cycle of their leadership, you're going to have some challenges. So mine was more uh, use of force um, and, and, and working on things like that. We have a DOJ agreement we're hoping to wrap up soon. Um, but I think, you know, if you're, you know, the question is, uh, where did it start? I think it started with Ed Hartnett. We didn't even have CompStat. Um, there wasn't really an inclusive type of, which I think was not uncommon to any police department in the day. It was like, don't call the sergeant, call a senior guy. Well, what the hell? I, I look at it as an older guy. What the hell are we paying a sergeant for then? You know, but back then that was the philosophy. And, and that's why people got in trouble uh, rather than say, look, you're, you're going to you're not going to be out there running around like a lunatic as a sergeant. But there's something that comes with this. We're giving you a raise. We're giving you added responsibility. We're giving you the latitude to make decisions, but you're also accountable. And that, that accountability, uh, Commissioner Hartnett pushed forward, too. So, you know, he kind of started it and then we, we continue to build on it. And then if you're going to be situational, as long as you're doing this each and every day, like new stuff's going to come up. But you're already it's like we may not know what to do, but we know how to figure it out. And I think that's something that should be cultural and and to be sustainable you don't have to know what's coming around the bend but do you have a plan to figure it out do you have a plan to catch it before it gets out of control whether it's crime or bad behavior or whatever so i think i think that was i hope that answers the question a lot of it had to do with ed hart yeah that, that no that's i i think that's excellent and um are are you able to uh build a leadership success plan so that, you know, this, this continued. We do. We actually, uh, last summer, you know, obviously everybody's got, you know, in police departments. And one thing we got good is we got lots of vacation. And, um, (laughs) so my partner is a detective Lieutenant. He's essentially the guy that I work with each and every day. I drive him crazy. He drives me crazy. 
uh, tremendous sounding board. He works right outside my office. When he goes on vacation, we select a uniform sergeant, just a random uniform sergeant or a uniform lieutenant. Say, you come up and you spend the next month with me. And what that allows us to do is to say, I'm going to bring in on everything. You know, I mean, we're not hiding anything. So there may be some kind of confidential things, but I want to see you to see how this place works. So there's a lot of rep- reciprocity with that strategy, George. One is that I'm hearing things that I wouldn't have heard of how I can make things better for the street. Uh, the benefit of that person, if they are willing, and most of them are, they go back to, the, to their precinct and their command and say, you know, these guys aren't as idiotic as we thought. Like they're actually coming to work and putting some time in. And there's some real concern and care for us. And, I, you know, I, I, I witnessed it. It wasn't like he just came and gave a five minute speech at roll call. I'm watching these guys try to figure things out for us each and every day. So there's a real benefit. The other thing is um, I like to send uh, lieutenants and captains and sergeants when I can to leadership training. We found some really good leadership training um, with NYU, uh, with Harvard, JFK, uh, John F. Kennedy School. I have one going right now. Um, We'll also do the Police Executive Research Forum. We have someone going to the FBI NA, and I think that's also helpful. But to your question, like we're constantly bringing in talent from the street, mostly. Uh, to show why we do what we do. And then we get a lot of good feedback from them about things that else we have. And I also, just even for the officer, I have these things called uh, Mueller's Fireside Chats, where uh, I, br- I bring up random wow. cops and we have dinner for them. We put them uh, at a table and we have dinner. And it's like, it's got to be a two hour exercise, like six or seven of them, because the first hour they're terrified and they don't want to say anything. And then it takes time to thaw them out. And then you, it's almost like when you're lifting weights, right? I know you're in shape, Ray. Like, you know, you, uh, I you was, do, you, I was. You well, when yeah. you were, you know that yeah. you do 15 reps, right? And, <laughs> but really what's changing your muscle is 13, 14, and 15. It's not the first three. So what happens with this, these, these informal things where we're just having dinner and talking takes about an hour for them to thaw out. Then it gets better and better and better. And before you know it, you know, we're having a really good two way conversation. Like, listen, I'm not going to like run back to my office and try to find out who you are and go get you. You know, I want to know what what your world is like. I want to understand what I can do. And there are sometimes because we all we were there, whether it was the ATF or New Jersey State Police or Yonkers PD. We don't understand as first level officers the why. And we and guys like I have to do better at that in communicating the mission and the reasons for it and value. Because, look. I'll tell you one thing I learned. If you treat your cops well, if you, you value them, love them, care for them, cheer for them, uh, also hold them accountable, um, they're going to do likewise to the community. On the other hand, and I think we've all worked in commands like this, if you walk into the building with a knot in your stomach and you haven't even gone to get out with the public yet, you know, you, that's going to be transferred on the public. So what we really want to do is just set these guys up to succeed. We want them to feel good as they leave the precinct at roll call. Like, you know what? I feel good internally uh, of how the job is being run. Now I'm going to take that good feeling. I'm going to pass it on to my people in the community. Great stuff. Well done. Um, Accountability. Relentless follow-up. So earlier in our discussion, we talked about how CompStat was once a month. And we've all agreed that uh, based on the just the nature of things, police, law enforcement, learning organizations, technology, you know, things are now uh, weekly, 
daily. What does relentless follow-up mean to you within your organization? I love that. That's a great question. Relentless follow-up means to us when we do get one of these top offenders, that is that 5% of the population that is probably responsible for between 80 and 90% of the crime. The relentless follow-up is like, for example, for my larceny, for larceny if you, know, you guys know, being longtime professionals, that if someone is the victim, has been victimized through rape or robbery, or they have a loved one who's been murdered, it's easy to get them to come to court and talk to a judge and give a victim an impact statement. Not so much when someone gets their car broken into. So I'll write a victim impact statement on behalf of everybody and sign it and hand it to the judge. So the relentless follow-up is, okay, we made the arrest. The guy's in custody. When is his felony hearing? Do we have what we need? What, is, what are the officers on the table for the him? Who's the defense attorney? Who's the judge? Uh, you know, is there is, you know, uh, if, if it's going to be probation, what are the probation terms? If we can't get them this time, can we can we get probation terms where we know he's going to violate the probation terms within about five minutes? We'll we'll use that against him. So the relentless follow up is moving it into the prosecution phase where people are actually going to jail. Like I said, we don't have to incarcerate the whole world. We actually have to incarcerate very few people. But the ones we do, the relentless follow up is. What happened with that case? So we have the, actually the district attorneys in our CompStat and our weekly crime meetings. So they know who our top people are that, that are a priority. Thank you for that response. But what about for innovation, your, your innovation projects in general? How does that, how do you follow that up as well? Because what you've done in Yonkers in terms of turning things around with your technology, that's, that's something that required time and attention. <clears throat> Yeah, I think I think the next step, the big ones for me are, are you know, uh, IA, artificial. I'm sorry. Yeah. Artificial intelligence. Yeah. Yep. Uh, what I'm finding is, is that our public is very, very misinformed about what it is and it's frightening them. So we're going to have to have a lot of conversations, a lot of Facebook live question and answers, community meetings to talk about what it is and what it is not. Right. Um, because I think that's huge. And it's the same thing with drones. Like I have two drone activists that are constantly um, fuss, don't want any drones. And so it's all about how you couch what you're looking to do. So the lady says, all she wants to talk about is Israel and Palestine and drones there. I'm like, we're not Israel and Palestine, though. Right. So take that and move it to the left. Um, well, you know, it's intrusive and it's, <clears throat> um, you know, it's an imposition on people's rights. So it can be. But most of the time, policies, and if you adhere to a policy, and that's your follow-up piece, Good point. that solves that problem. And, but then you have to pose a question to her and say, let me ask you a question. If your mother had Alzheimer's and she snuck out the back door of the nursing home and got into the woods, and wow. I had a drone that had thermal imagery uh, capacity that got up and found her before she froze to death, wouldn't you be happy that I had that? Or if you had an autistic child that got away? And when you start river, sharing, by the river, yeah. When you're sharing those things, now it's like she wants to talk about that somehow we're going to put a machine gun on it and just mow people down. But when you start talking about autistic kids and Alzheimer's patients or people that are on a jet ski on the Hudson River, you know, now all of a sudden the drone isn't as bad. So it's all like, you know, that's kind of like a large piece of it, too. Like, you know, are you explaining the way you're using this technology in a way where they feel comfortable. And that's a transparency piece. I'll tell you, if we do get the drone uh, uh, program off the ground, I fully intend to share quarterly 
every time we used it, the reasons why and the outcome uh, and, and share the policy with people to say it's all here. Because what I found more than any time is it's when you say I can't tell you is when people go berserk. When you hand them everything, okay, now you, you better spend the next three nights reading because I'm going to give you about 500 pages of stuff. Then you don't hear as much. So it, it's, it's just giving everyone the information saying we have nothing to hide. Uh, explaining the why. I love it. Yeah, for the cops and the community, everybody. Because, and you also can admit you, you don't always get it right. You know, you make a lot of mistakes. I make mistakes every, I'm the, make mistakes more than anybody. But, you know, you're sincere about what the objectives are, what the goals are, and you're willing to show that, you know, you can, you, you can apologize and say, look, I got that wrong. Um, people, you will, you know, if you do that over time and you engage with people, you get more credibility that way. So, John, uh, what what are the things that either keep you up at night or stop you from going to sleep? Uh, activist prosecutors and activist judges that seem to run a rewrite, you know, what their job is within the way our great founding fathers created this country. You know, the legislators are supposed to legislate. They're supposed to make law. The executive branch, police and DAs are supposed to enforce the law. The judicial branch is supposed to interpret the law. Sorry for giving you the third grade. Uh, you know what it is. But my, the reason I'm bringing it up is because I think that what you're having is, especially in New York, you're having an overreach of the legislature reach in the other branches like the judicial branch and say, we don't trust you to uh, be uh, fair and impartial in whether or not you're going to assess bail. That's not how it's supposed to work. You have a DA right now in New York City saying, I'm going to make a robbery a petty larceny, although I think he walked it back. But the point being, that's not the job he signed up for. And it's not the job he was elected to do. He was elected to prosecute the law as it is. You know, that's where cops got in trouble years ago, whether it's federal, state or local. When they decide to say, you know what, I should have got a search warrant, but maybe I'll lie. And then you blow up the case. You get arrested for perjury and it's just not worth it. And I think that those standards have to be held to everybody in the in the in the uh, criminal justice process that to have a DA say we're going to enforce this and not enforce that. That keeps me up at night because that's frightening because now you're messing with. The way the founding fathers created this wonderful check and balance, you know, you're overstepping. You got to you got you know, listen, if you want to be a defense attorney, do it and be a good one. But don't. Say you're running for pro- for uh, a bit to be a, a DA and then be a defense attorney. That's what keeps me up at night. Excellent. And and, 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 and you know, some of the laws that are being enacted because uh, they don't, you know, like I think that it was done without a lot of input from law enforcement professionals. And I always say, you don't have to do what we say. They people, the people elected you to do a job. But to think that we shouldn't be any part of the conversation was reckless. And that's why they had to change some of the laws. Thankfully, even our progressive lawmakers are willing to talk to us. I'm constantly engaging with them. My colleagues are constantly engaging. We're always trying to like make cases for different things and show them the why. Um, sometimes we succeed and sometimes we don't. It, it doesn't pay to get nasty with people or, or attack people on social media. It's better just to say, I, I know why you did what you did. And I think that there was a need for it. But here's what none of us Here's an unintended consequence that none of us saw coming. So can we get together now and try to solve that problem? That's yeah, that's that's great. So let me let me ask you this. Um, 
number one, uh, for my own personal interest, because I'd come off the bench to go to work for you. So, uh, so are you hiring? Uh, <laughs> but, but realistically, um, there's a young man or young woman that is on the fence about joining this profession of ours and, and taking up this, this guardian's pathway. Uh, what do you tell them um, to sell it? How do, how do you drive that sale home of, hey, man, law enforcement may be the way for you to go? So what we do is we just had an exam. We have an exam every four years. It's very competitive because the pay is excellent. Um, we called it Be the Change. And it was kind of, a, a, you know, kind of building off of wanting, you know, the, the, the some of the community wanting to, law enforcement to change in certain ways. Many of the ways I agreed with, some of them were not practical, and that's fine. We can have that discussion with people. Um, and then what we do also, George, is we bring in interested kids through uh, the police cadet program. And then we hire them for, as interns here, and they spend the whole summer with us. And I was never so proud. There's a girl, you know, she'll be my friend forever. Young kid, her name is Christina Gonzalez. Um, she's still thinking about what she wants to do, but she came and um, we had a, an internship drive. And of course, uh, and you guys will appreciate this. They go around the room and they say, all right, how many people want to work in the mayor's office? Hands go up because these are all kids from the community. How many people want to work in the fire department? Hands go up. Parks department. How many in the police department? Nobody. Nobody wanted to work <laughs> By the end of the summer, what we did was, George, we would um, bring them in and they'd get paid well. They get like $18 or $16 an hour. And I would always have um, a fun day for them. Like, all right, you did all the filing all week. We're sending you to emergency services. Go look at the toys. Or we'll send you for a canine demonstration or go down and talk to the cold case detective. So then we're finding that these kids wanted to join and they're feeling better about us. And I think. You can't, here's the thing, you can't, have, especially in communities of color, you can't have a conversation with a black kid in a library for five minutes and expect he wants to join our profession with all the crap that's floating around on social media and everything that he's been exposed to. Maybe he had personal situations, maybe he has a friend who had him or a relative. It's so much deeper than that. So you got to have that internship and a cadet program where you're constantly interacting. And, and I got to tell you, um, I'm so proud of my cops because my union, not my union, but the Yonkers PBA came up with the Be the Change kids. They're all kids from the community. They want to take the test. The test is expensive to take. It's $100. And a lot of them didn't have it. So the PBA put together the sponsorship program where we had all the 100 kids that were in the Be the Change program. Uh, each one of us picked up one application fee of 100 bucks. Some cops pay for three. Um, and so all those kids wow. got paid. So to your question, George, that kid wants to join. He was on the fence. And now he's got a cop who just went into his own pocket and paid for the application fee. That's a, that we're trying to set this kid up for success. That's tremendous. That's John. That's uh, just outstanding. That's the cops. That's it's not me. It's the yeah. cops. They're, they're so good. And and now what we're going to do is we're going to because let's face it. My dad was a firefighter. Uh, my brother was a detective with, you know, Yonkers PD, but he worked at the DEA. Um, and but a lot of us, and I'm sure it's the same with you guys, we probably come from some civil service, whether that was DPW or fire or police, and you end up following the footsteps. There's so many kids in the Yonkers community that don't have that dad that had this. So they're the first ones to break the ceiling. So we have to be the big brother. We have to sponsor kids. We have to engage them, just like you're saying. Because once you do that, then it's exponential. That ball starts rolling downhill. Then, 
that kid does well and he makes a hundred thousand and you know a 24 year old kid with overtime and then he tells three of his friends and before you know it so it's not just a question of the exam or paying for it that it's okay here's what you're going to expect on your background check here's what's going to happen with your psychological here's going to happen with your medical um test here's what the physical is so now we're doing what my dad would have done for me when he was a firefighter saying you know john you're going to go join the nypd you don't know where left rack city is in queens you better drive out there the day before and you're going to be wearing a suit and tie or whatever we're going to do that for these kids too and i you know the, the jury's out yet but i really think we're going to have some great success with this next group of kids that are from yonkers that want to be as you're saying they want to be on the team nice very nice good stuff so john i have one final question and we're just we just broke an hour here so this is it's it but Feels like five minutes in the amount of time. I'm we've sorry, been I can talk to I talk to paint off. No, on, right? I I love it. But a little bit of a twist on on George's question, and I I want to focus on those folks that are on the job that are aspiring leaders. They want to get into uh, ranking positions, executive level <laughs> positions. If the RF factor had unlimited amounts of money that we could give you. Uh, that you could then provide, whether it was your gift in a book, your gift in some sort of training, your some experience that, and and I'm going to echo what what George has said. I, I'd love to come work for you now too. Uh, you're a tremendous leader, but how do we take the leadership that you have? What 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 could you impart on those aspiring leaders? Some experience that you had, some book you had that they should be running out tomorrow and doing and why? I think that probably if there was any training I ever had, it was uh, the police executive research forum under Chuck Wexler um, in Boston, where I went away for a month. So you're saying unlimited budget, budget, you'll pay the, the artifact that will pay for that. Um, get these guys away in a, in a learning situation, a leadership learning situation where your understanding leadership style, because here's the thing, we're cops, but I think that it's no different at IBM or, uh, you know, a private equity company, you know, are you motivating people and getting them to want to do the job? Especially like we're, we're trammeled, as you know, like we're not in the private sector. We can't pay commission. We can't give bonuses. Um, but people do this job because they have a passion for helping other people. They really do. And when you kind of seize on that, I think, I would want to go to Perf again because we didn't spend one minute about police technique or strategy or anything. It was all case studies. Like we did one about GE and how it, you know, rose to this giant too big to fail and then it completely collapsed and then they brought it back. I think that was so interesting, like to see because what you're really, what I would really want to impart on people is management techniques, proper ones are portable doesn't matter what you're doing. You can run a popcorn stand or run a police department or run, you know, run Amazon. It's all about learning how to, you know, have emotional intelligence and understanding people and understanding what motivates them and, and being able to take a step back and say, listen, I don't have all the answers. I'm not, a, you know, a particularly super smart guy. I just have a lot of passion for this and I've been doing it a long time. So if there's one thing uh, that you... <laughs> That if we, we had unlimited money, I would love to send them away, not something in the Yonkers, something where they could just leave the job aside and 
do best practice leadership through case studies and really good teachers. You know, maybe someone like yourself would come in or I would come in and talk and you'd have that. But just, you know, just concentrating on that because, you know, I'm, I'll never remember all the things in our policy and procedure. And I'm sure you wouldn't remember anything in your patrol guide. But, you know, most of the time it's what you it's how you approach solving the problem. That's precision policing. That's using the technology, leveraging it. That's motivating employees. It all comes down to, you know, these management styles and there's a right way to do it. You know, you got to find out where you fit. But um, if there was anything, that's what I would want. That's what I'm looking more for is where I can send these guys for two weeks or a month and say, just forget about the job. You know, bring your wife down, your family down to spend time with you and just try to learn from all these great case studies where mistakes were made in the past, see where they made them and, and see how you can build out of that. Wow. I can't thank you enough, uh, John, Commissioner, for coming on. This was a great episode with you. Um, I think one of the things I would gift is this episode to folks because you covered a lot of ground. And uh, thank you for that. Wow. I think the future is bright, right? You got, you know, you retired guys have really, you know, cut cut the path forward and and the future is bright. We have a lot of young talent. Um, we have a community that supports us. I mean, the future is, is not dark. It's bright. Oh. Again, thank you. Any any other causes you want to bring up that you're involved with? Uh, uh, voluntary stuff? Yeah, one thing we're doing now um, is um, we're, we're, we're doing more about peer review. So I know that how you and I dealt with it and George dealt with it when you had a traumatic incident. And essentially, you got nothing. Or you went to the bar and you had a drink when something really bad happened. But this generation officer really understands mental wellness and health and how important it is. So we're really working on a good peer peer program where the cops are helping each other. Um, we're sending four of them out to Atlanta, Georgia next month at the IECP health and wellness convention for police officers. And when these guys come back and girls come back, they're so excited. Like they got these 18 million beautiful ideas and most of them you could do. So, you know, I just I can't wait to get back and hear from them, like what they want to do. And then just, you know, again, it's not me. It's it's them saying just giving them, empowering them to make those decisions, give them a little bit of money and, and helping them with the structure of the design. And then they're off and running. George, George, anything else? No, John, this is tremendous. Uh, great, great stuff. Um, I you're obviously doing an outstanding job impacting lives, uh, not just in your department, but out in the, uh, uh, out in the community that, uh, that you folks serve as well. And, you know, the more I talk to guys who are as squared away as you, I realized I, I was apparently not doing it right the last 20 years or so, but, but, uh, just tremendous, tremendous stuff. It was an honor to get to talk with you and get to meet you. Likewise. Absolutely. And, and you know what? We were all in the same boat 20 years. And if, if, if we got on, I, I love this story, this fairy story that, that cops, you know, when they're coming on, they're like, oh, you know, the job just started going downhill. You know, well, guess what? The greatest generation, World War II veterans, came back, stormed the beaches of Iwo Jima, became cops. And guess what the guys said when they walked in? Oh, you're missing the end of it. You know, this job is toast. These guys are done. Bullshit. It's it, the cop. The, the job is going to be fine. You're going to have always those percentages of workers and guys that care. You'll have a few cancerous people. You deal with them. But at the end of the day, it's it, like I say to my chiefs, it's not our job anymore. It's their job. 
So let's just make them where they want to go out and serve the community, treat them as clients. And and because it's true, there's real satisfaction out of that. And I don't think our generation really got to enjoy that because we weren't told to do that. And I think some of the joy that these cops have is because they're doing it in a way where they're talking to people like you just solved that person's problem. They have nothing else They you know, they're, they're, they're not doing nearly as well as you are financially, maybe family wise. And you went and you just made things a little bit better. Like, how great is that? I think it's tremendous. Excellent. Uh, great way to close, sir. Yes, thank sir. you again for your time and uh, looking forward to seeing you again at one of those bar restaurants in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Sheehan's already, he's got a lot to say to you. So um, <laughs> we'll talk about offline about that. All right, sir. Thank you, guys. You both have a great night. Likewise. Right. Thank you. Thank you, George. Thank you, Ray.